All right. So I told you Rob's out this week. And uh, this morning we'll be in Romans chapter 14. Uh, as you get ready to turn there, I just want to give you some information. We talked about the last week about uh, John chapter 17. And Rob mentioned how he wants to begin taking us through the series on unity. He pointed out five things that he saw in John chapter 17. And those five things all relate to unity. And those were our purpose, our mission, truth, holiness, and love. So naturally, trying to set Rob up for next week without stealing any of his material, I began to think, okay, how can I, how can I set him up really well? What, where does the Lord want us to go? What, what does our congregation need to hear? And the Lord just brought me to Romans chapter 14. And it's a very, very interesting, unique passage of Scripture um, that deals with believers in the church who have different opinions, who are from different backgrounds, they're of different ages, they have different preferences, they have some different beliefs, and it's very, very applicable to us today in the modern church because we also consist of many, many different types of people, different ages, different backgrounds, different desires, different preferences, different opinions, all these things. But in the middle of this, What's so beautiful about it is that God has grouped all these different kinds of people together who he's made in his image, who he has made unique with their own characteristics and personalities. And yet he's called us all to be together. He's called us all to be united. And the purpose of that, as they see in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, I'll read that to you now, is so that we will glorify him. And so that others may come to know him through our unity. So I just want to read this, this three verses to you. So I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. That's the purpose. The unity reflects God's unity with himself and also shows the rest of the world, hey, we may be a different group of people. We may be of different ages. We may look different. We may sound different. We may vote different. We may like different things. But at the end of the day, We all know and believe and trust in Jesus and that is who unites us and brings us together. And when we do that and we follow his desire for unity, we get a beautiful picture here on earth of what we will have one day when Jesus returns where all these different people are brought to him and exist in perfect unity with the Father in love and genuine kindness and who have joy and peace and all these incredible things. And Paul's going to talk about that in this passage of Scripture. It's really, really incredible. So as you could imagine, unity is very, very important for us as believers. Our unity points people to Jesus, right? I'm sure you expected that coming from me because I always say, hey, everything that you do points people to Jesus in some way or another. The way you talk, the way you think, the way you act, your tone of voice, your genuineness, all of these things point people to Jesus in one way or another. So this morning, I want to look at unity, just introducing this topic to us. So, if you look at Romans chapter 14, I think it has a lot to show us about unity, about humility, and about how as believers we are called to be united and also humble in order to care for one another despite our differences, okay? So, I would like to point out some important things about the background that we'll see in verses 2 and 5. So if you, I'll read verses 2 and 5 to you. It says this, One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced 
in his own mind. Okay, so what you have here in the church is just a wide variety of different kinds of people, okay? So he talks about the weak in faith in verse 1, the person who eats only vegetables. And I just want to explain to you what he means by that. So this time in the church, there were many Jews who had come to faith. There were many Gentiles who had come to faith. Some of them were more mature than others. Some of them understood that Jesus' perfect life and death and resurrection meant that they didn't have to follow the dietary laws anymore. Okay? So that's one of the biggest and most important things. So you have these Jews who had come to faith in Jesus, and these people are struggling to quit practicing the ceremonial laws and traditions that they'd been practicing all throughout their lives, right? So they're following the Sabbath on a specific day. They are still making sacrifices in the temple of the Lord, and they are still following the dietary laws. At the same time, there are many Gentiles who have come to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. However, many of these people have been involved in pagan worship practices all throughout their lives. They've served false gods. And now, due to a desire to stay true to Jesus and not to fall back into sin, they avoid eating meat that has been offered to a pagan deity in the temple and that has now been sold in the marketplace. Very similar to what's happened in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10, which Paul also covers. So it's very popular. It's, it's a big, it's a hot-button issue at this point in time. So, you know that Paul addresses this, uh, and it was pretty serious around that time. So those are the people who are called weak in faith. It doesn't mean that they don't believe in Jesus. It doesn't mean that they don't have a relationship with him. It just means these people are more likely to stumble and are holding, holding fast to these traditions, okay? Or, in the Gentiles' case, steering clear of these traditions completely and not understanding that the food that you put in does not make you unclean or separate you from God, okay? And then you have the strong believers. The other believers who Paul refers to, these are a mix of Jews and Gentiles who understand that Jesus has brought them freedom from the Old Testament dietary laws under the new covenant of his perfect life, death, and resurrection, which now makes them clean. So they understand that there's no idolatry no struggle, nothing wrong with eating food that has been sold in the marketplace that was previously offered on the altar to a pagan deity, right? Or to a false god. So these people, they just remind me of the wide variety of people that we have in the church. People from different backgrounds, people from different upbringings, people with different opinions, different political views, and other individual preferences, just like the Christians that Paul is writing to in this letter. And just like these believers that Paul is about to call to unity, we have been called to unity in Christ. And yet, while we've been called to unity, we struggle to live in a way that shows the world we are united and that we exist to love God and all people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, despite our differences. So let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says this, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Okay, so we talked about those who are described as weak in faith already. What's very interesting about this verse is that the group that they're talking about, the weak in faith, that's a minority group. It's a smaller group. At this time, in this culture, the larger group just gets to say, and they get to win, and everyone just does what the larger group wants to do. That was great culture. The larger group wins, the stronger group wins, now everyone just has to follow this. We're not going to deal with that. We're just going to say, hey, everyone understand this. We got it. Let's move on. If you're not comfortable with it, that's okay. But Paul says, no, we're not going to do it that way because that's not God's desire. He says, welcome him. Do not quarrel over opinions. Notice that he says, opinions and welcome him. Those are the two biggest things that we're going to cover, okay? So, let's cover this welcome first. Welcome doesn't just mean tolerate. Welcome doesn't just mean allow them to be part of the church, allow them to sit in the back, don't shake their hand when they come in, don't really talk to them, don't be intentional with them. That's not what welcome means, right? That's what they would have been doing because they disagreed. That is what we do because we disagree with people's opinions and preferences about the issues going on in the world today. We say, okay, I'm just going to steer clear of that guy or that gal. 
I'm going to do my own thing, right? And Paul says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to welcome them. And the word that he's using for welcome means to receive with warmth and true fellowship, which means that these believers who are weak in the faith should never feel attacked or like they're a second-class member of the church, but instead they should feel welcomed and cared for by the more mature Christians in the church. Now remember, these are people who are newer in the faith. These are people who are struggling with sin. Part of the reason that they're saying, I'm going to continue, especially the Gentiles, I'm going to distance myself from these things because I was involved in that my whole life, and I want to be true to Christ now, doesn't want to run into those people, doesn't want to be around that because he's afraid that he will slip back into that sin. And Paul is saying, welcome these people warmly, kindly, understand that God has created them to become part of the family. And this is just super, super important for us because we begin to see how people who have different opinions, different preferences, different ideas, and people who are new in the faith or who have been in the faith for a long time are meant to be welcomed as if they are family, beloved members of the family. So, this brings us to our first application of the text. As believers, we have to begin to ask ourselves, have we gone to the same lengths to include, regularly serve, and welcome others who have different opinions, preferences, and ideas than we do the same way that Jesus went to great lengths to love, include, serve, and welcome us into his family as beloved members of his family? Or have we been more apt to exclude others from our conversations, social groups, events, and other activities simply because they are different or hold a different belief or opinion than we do? Now keep in mind, we're not talking about doctrinal and theological issues We're not talking about the incarnation of Christ. We're not talking about how Jesus came and was fully man, was 100% man, was 100% God at the same time. We're not talking about that. We're talking about opinions. We are talking in this passage about things that Scripture does not clearly lay out for us and say, do this or don't do this. That's very important. And we'll get to that later. So issues like, for us, who do we vote for? What political candidate? Candidate. What policy? Issues on social media. Issues on the news. Issues about COVID-19. Issues like, is it okay for me to walk into a bar? Is it okay for me to have a drink? And just like the church in Rome, we debate about all these things and divide God's church. We allow these topics to become so important that we forget the most important thing, which is Christ, and that we are called to unity and to welcome and fellowship with one another, greeting each other like family with open arms. So we forget that we're meant to be this picture that reflects God and His unity and His love, the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus' unity with one another, how we are meant to be united in love, joy, and peace. Now, As Paul moves into verse 3, we begin to see the deep-rooted issues that are taking place between these believers, these believers who are meant to be united. Before we get there, I just want to pick up on this. This is the last thing I told you about in verse 1. It says not to quarrel over opinions. He's saying, don't come into the church and try to sway them and try to badger them and say, why do you think this way? You're doing this wrong. He's saying, no, we're not coming here to quarrel over opinions. We're coming over here to be united. It doesn't mean that we don't challenge one another and sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron, right, like Scripture talks about. He's saying, we're not coming in and trying to change people's preferences simply to bully them the way that these members of the church were doing. Okay. So now let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So, the one who eats despises the one who abstains. He's talking about the mature believer. Despising those who are 
weak in faith, despising those, looking down his nose at those who say, no, I can't eat that. No, I need to practice the Sabbath today on this specific holy day. So he's looking down his nose at these people. He's telling these people, hey, you don't have to continue to follow the dietary laws and abstain from certain things. Because to them, to this mature believer, these people are still living under the law, which is unnecessary to them because of Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death. And Paul says, you cannot look down at others because of this. Okay. Now, are they right? They are right in their own sense that, hey, these people are following these, these laws and these Gentiles are, are steering away from all of these meats. But in their instance, as we'll see in the following verses, it's okay because they're doing this to, present, to prevent themselves from stumbling so that they might honor and glorify God. Okay? So he's saying, do not despise them. I understand that you're trying to help. In the second half of this verse, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So here's the problem. The group of believers, only eating vegetables, right? Fearing that meat sold in the markets had been offered to idols. Their tendency is to condemn other believers because they did not observe these dietary laws. Paul tells them not to condemn those who eat everything because God has accepted them. God has accepted them without their having to observe these laws. So, these believers have become frightened and legalistic, and now they're impressing their opinions and their preferences and their own worries and concerns about stumbling onto other believers. And now he's saying, you may be convicted to live your life a certain way. For some of us, you may be convinced that you should stay away from alcohol. I personally, I stay away from alcohol. It's been really bad for my family over the years. Before I was saved, I had my own struggles with alcohol. I stay away from it because I know personally that it could lead me into sin because this is something that my family struggled with for years and years and years. Others, hey, it is okay. Scripture is clear. Scripture says, do not be filled with new wine, but be filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. All it says about alcohol is to not be drunk. That's it, because it leads to debauchery and a whole mess of other sins. Now, some people, as we'll see in the following verses, we're in verse 6 where it says, The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So one person may say, I can't walk in to this situation because I may stumble. And another can say, I have no struggle walking into this environment. I can go here and I can be a presence for Jesus. I can go into this bar and I can offer to give people a ride home and I can be this presence that points people to Christ, who helps people, who gets them home safely. And that reflects the gospel. Both, both glorify God in their own way. And that is a much more modern picture of what you see happening in this text, which hopefully is easier for you to understand. Now, Unfortunately, these different beliefs that these people are having, they're both convicted of, they affect the way they interact with one another, the way they relate to each other, and the way they think about each other. So now, we have to ask ourselves, how can this church hold together in unity, in unity despite the major differences that they have with one another? And how can we hold fast to unity with one another in the middle of our differences and in the middle of receiving harsh criticisms from others in the church? just as these believers are dealing with from each other. Because that's what's happening. They're criticizing one another. They're arguing with one another, as we often do on social media, as we often do on our own minds. And he's saying, be careful. He's saying, watch it. Be very, very careful. So what does this have to do with you, right? You eat meat, and that's okay, in case you're worried about that. The importance of this text shows us that while we have preferences and different ideas about what's okay and what's not okay, that we are meant to be united, that we're called to be united, and that in the middle of harsh criticisms from one another, we can be united and point people to Christ. So, 
The answer as we deal with one another, as we deal with the world and the criticisms from the world, is not to split up and be in different churches. The answer is not to berate each other. The answer is not to take a vote and decide that one opinion is right over the other and that everyone has to jump on board with the side that gets more votes. So what are we to do? We are to build unity around Jesus. That's what Paul tells them. You are to build unity around Jesus. So, how do we build unity around Jesus in the middle of a harsh and critical world where even fellow Christians who will will disagree with us, despise us, judge us, and at even times speak ill of us? And our first answer is at the end of verse 3. It says this, For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. So, despite our feelings, our personal convictions, our pride, and the hurt that others may cause us when they disagree with us, what Paul is calling us to do is simply focus on the fact that God has welcomed whoever it is that has hurt us into his family, that he has made it possible for him to know him and love him and have a relationship with him, which means that we are not meant to be enemies, but blood-bought family. Since God has welcomed him, for us to continue to pass judgment or to despise one another is sin. Instead of focusing on the fact that we disagree over a certain issue or that we've been wounded by someone after a conversation, we should focus on how Jesus was wounded by us and our sin and how Jesus willingly dealt with the wounds that we gave him due to our defiance, our lack of love for him, our lack of of care for his law and his desire for us to follow a perfect way, a way that's better for us. And he bore these wounds in order to welcome us into his family. If every time we were wronged or confronted and felt the desire to argue or lash out at the believer who hurt us, we confronted it with this truth that we also wounded Jesus, that Jesus willingly took those wounds for us in order to welcome us into his family, we would be more willing to say, okay, let me not get in the flesh, but let me ask the Spirit for guidance. We would become more patient, more welcoming, and ultimately more like Jesus. And that's the first thing that he wants us to see. Welcome him. Welcome others who would harm you, who would speak ill of you, the way Jesus has welcomed you. Verse 4, Paul says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Okay, so there's two things here. The first thing that Paul wants us to see is a warning. A warning for those who would judge the servants of God. The language Paul uses for servant here means the member of a household, and for a guest to criticize a servant in his master's household would have been a cultural no-no. It would not have been tolerated. And that's what he wants to see here, is that we are not the judge, that God is the judge, and as the judge, he will take care of everything. And we're meant to trust him as a judge. The second is that God will uphold those who seek after him. You see, the weak in faith in this text they're after those who don't follow the same dietary laws as them, who don't abstain from the same things that they do. They're making the case that those who do not follow the strict customs will stumble into sin because that is often what happens to them when they're in this sin or near it. But Paul points out that since God has freed them from the law, he will also uphold them and allow them to stand firm in the faith because Jesus' blood covers them and his work changes the desires of the heart allowing them to partake in these things without ever placing them above God. Now, our second answer to this question, the question that we first posed, which was how do we build unity around Jesus in the middle of a harsh and critical world where even other believers will disagree with us and despise us and hurt us? The next answer to that question is in verses 5 through 8. It says this, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. 
The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. What Paul is doing here is he is taking just a regular, everyday, cultural argument, and he is turning it into an issue of faith, which is what we should always do. What Paul is saying here is basically both people are right. Both people are right. How? Why? The answer to the question is that in order to build unity around Jesus in the middle of a harsh and critical world, all we need to do is focus on honoring the Lord above everything else. And if we're focused on honoring the Lord, not only will we bring glory and honor to Him in our actions, but we'll bring glory and honor to Him in our relationships with others. Even if they don't agree with everything that we do and think and say. Okay, so let's break it down. Let's look at the second half. Well, before we look at that second half and we dive into this passage of Scripture, there's something that we need to understand. Okay? This passage purposely points out how to live in a way that promotes unity in the body of Christ when we are presented with issues that are not specifically pointed out in Scripture. Where God does not specifically say, you should do this and you should not do this. Okay, so there are many issues where God does clearly tell us what to do in His Word. So don't take this passage in the sermon today and say, oh, I think that glorifies and honors God, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. That's not what He's saying. We should be a people who are continually shaped by God's Word and who obey God's Word, especially when it speaks clearly about an issue. We should be a people who are willing to go to God's Word and understand what He wants us to do in every situation. So, when God's Word says, do this or do not do this, we should clearly obey it. So when God says, do not lie, do not steal, do not kill, let only that which is good for lifting up come out of your mouth, Love your neighbor as yourself. Those things have been made clearly known to us that we should refrain from doing some of them and we should absolutely be all about doing some of them. Now, why am I telling you that? Because you will not live your life in a way that is glorifying to God when confronted with these issues that are not brought up in the text if you do not steep your heart in prayer, and in God's Word continuously. Because how will you know God and His character and His incredible guidance and love for you if you don't spend time in His presence, in His Word, and in prayer? The answer is that you won't. You won't know Him. You won't understand who He is. You won't understand what's glorifying and honoring to Him. You won't have a clue because you haven't taken a look at the book, right? You haven't experienced Him. And I don't just mean come to church and listen to me or to Rob or to any other incredible pastor that that you hear, Platt or any of those big-name guys. Uh, What we're talking about is making sure that you fill your heart with God's Word and that you have your own deep personal relationship with Him. Because if you don't, you won't understand what to do when you're confronted with these choices. You won't be able to choose something that's glorifying and honoring to God. You won't have a personal conviction because your heart will be hard. So it's important for us to honor God's written word because honoring that word reveals God's character to us, his desires for us, and it exposes the sinful and fleshly areas of our lives that need to change. So, it's often the case that when we fail to focus on honoring God by living out His written word and the commands that He's clearly given us, that we will also fail to honor Him when we're confronted with matters that the Scriptures do not give us a clear answer, black and white answer. 
So this is why it's very important for you to fill your heart with God's word day in and day out and spend time in his presence. So, continuing on with this passage, now diving into this, verse 5b, he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What does that mean? That sounds dangerous. I want you to be fully convinced. I want you to make a decision. You go ahead and you do it, but whatever you do, you stick by it. Be, be fully convinced. Go ahead. Does that just mean he wants us to be stubborn? That's not it. What he's saying is, know God. Know God so well, so deeply. Know his character. Have a personal relationship with him. Reflect on your own heart. Spend time talking with other mature believers about the things that God wants us to do and his mission for us and his desire for us so that when these things come up, you will understand his heart and you will understand your own struggles and you will be able to make a decision that is glorifying and honoring to God without a shadow of a doubt. That's what he's saying. And we know that because the following verses where he says, both of these guys are right. And how do we know that they can both be right? Because both of them do what? They focus on honoring the Lord. One, one observes the Sabbath in honor of the Lord. One eats in honor of the Lord. And one abstains in honor of the Lord. And they all give thanks to God. And then, what does Paul say? He says, why are these things important? He says, for none of us live to himself. We do not live for ourselves. None of us dies to himself. If we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And that's it. He lays it out. He says, no matter what you're doing, make it an issue of faith. And if you'll look at verse 23 in Romans 14, he says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So let all of your actions when you're confronted with these, these issues cause you to ask the question, what will reflect the gospel? What will bring the most glory and honor to God? Is this something that I will continue to stumble with? Is this something that will lead me astray? Is this something that will lead others astray? He's saying, watch yourself and make your decisions based off of your faith. How often can we say, with every decision that you made today, that you made yesterday, how many of them were made in faith? How many of them did you say, what can I do that will be the most glorifying and honoring to God? I have tried and I have failed. There have been many days where I said, I wasted my time and it was not glorifying and honoring to God. I cracked that joke and it was not lifting. It did not, it was not good for lifting up. My decision was not glorifying and honoring to God. And that's what he's pointing out. So, everything that we do is meant to be done and influenced by our faith in Jesus. Now, we have one more answer to our question about how we build unity around Jesus in the middle of a harsh and critical world. Tim Keller. He's a really great guy. I really love a lot of his stuff. You've probably heard me say his name a thousand times by now. You're probably tired of hearing it. But uh, he does a great... He, he, wrote, he wrote a great article, uh, and you can find it on the Gospel Coalition. Uh, it's titled, uh, Dealing with Criticism um, on John Newton's Letter on Controversy, if you want to look that up. And I just want to read it to you. It's going to take a minute, uh, but then we'll, we'll go back through, and we'll just pull some very, very important points about each of these things that will help us glorify and honor God and build unity in the church even though we're faced with people who have different ideas and different opinions and who will ridicule you and who will hurt you and who will talk bad about you. So this is super important. This is what he says. He says, Recently several people have asked me how do you deal with harsh criticism about his own opinions, his own preferences. 
In each case, the inquirer had felt stung by what they felt were unfair attacks on him or her. In this Internet age, anyone can have their views censored unfairly by people they don't know. So what do you do when that happens? Here's the gist of the counsel I give people when they ask me about this. For years, I've been guided by a letter by John Newton that is usually entitled On Controversy. He says, The biggest danger of receiving criticism is not to your reputation, but to your heart. You feel the injustice, and you feel sorry for yourself, and it tempts you to despise not only the critic, but the entire group of people from which they come. Those people, you mutter under your breath, all this can make you prouder over time. Newton writes, Whatever makes us trust in ourselves that we are comparatively wise or good, such to treat those with contempt who do not subscribe to our doctrines or follow our party, is a proof and fruit of, self, of a self-righteous spirit. He argues that whenever contempt and superiority accompany our thoughts, it is a sign that the doctrines of grace are operating in our life as mere notions and speculations with no influence upon our conduct. So what's he saying there? Because if you're like me, you had to read that a couple times, right? He's saying, every time you mutter under your breath and you think these negative thoughts about these credits, how, how could they attack me? I'll show them. I'll do these things. He's saying, the gospel has taken no real hold on your mind and in your heart because it has clearly not influenced your ability to think and your ability to act in light of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. So, He's saying the gospel is meant to influence your thoughts and your actions. So if the gospel is meant to influence your thoughts and your actions, then why are you holding a defense trial in your mind against the person who has said something negative about you or your preference or opinion, whether that's political or it's something at work or it's any opinion? Why are you holding a defense trial in your mind? when you should say, you know what? This has no eternal value. And this person's heart is so much more important to me. Maybe they don't understand who I am. Maybe they don't understand who Jesus is. And we'll see later, later on in this passage, he says, pray for them, care for them. As we continue on, he says, how can you avoid this temptation? First, you should look to see if there's a kernel of truth and even the most exaggerated and unfair broadsides. There's usually a kernel of truth when the criticism comes from friends. There's often such truth when the disapproval comes from people who actually know you. <clears throat> so he's saying, look at your life. Has someone said something about you? Be willing and be sensitive enough to say, okay, let me see if there's any truth to that. Some of the last points that he makes here. He says, pray for the critic. Deal gently with them. For the Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. And lastly, just the last thing I want to point out is that he says, controversies, generally they are not productive they're of little good. They provoke those whom they should convince, and they puff up those whom they should edify. I hope your performance will savor of a spirit of true humility and be a means of promoting it to others. These are the things that he points out. Pray for the critic. Pray for the people who would say something negative about you. Care for those. Have the heart that Jesus had. A heart that says, Father, they know not what they do as they crucified him. So, the spirit of humility will result in us doing exactly what Romans 14, verses 17 through 19 says. And those verses say this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This requires a great deal of humility. Humility that we don't possess in our own power. And humility that we have to look for Christ, to Christ for. So what's he saying? He's saying it's not about the eating and the drinking. So for us, what does that mean? 
It's not about our own preferences and opinions. It's about righteousness. It's about peace. It's about joy in the Holy Spirit, following God and His will for our lives. And then he says, whoever serves Christ is acceptable and approved by men. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. What does that mean? It means we're attempting to build the body. And how are we going to do it? By doing what he says in verses 20 through 21. He says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is no good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Pay attention to this for a second. Just for a second. Let's replace the word food. Let's replace it with anything. Let's replace it with our political opinions, with the policies that we vote for, with our political candidates, what we think about coronavirus. We can allow these worldly preferences to destroy the work of God. That's what he's saying. You can allow these things to divide you. You can allow these things to cause you to not love and serve others whom God has called us to love and serve. And how? By arguing over things. Not only by arguing over these things, but by indoctrinating others with our own opinions and preferences that are not built in faith. By holding these things up as something that is more weighty, that is weightier and more important than Jesus. By talking about these things more than we talk about Jesus and His Word and who He is and what He's done for us, what He's called us to. By indoctrinating our our friends, our families, fellow believers, convincing them that these worldly issues and ways of thinking are more important than the God who laid His life down for us on the cross. So what do we need to do? We need to be humble. We need to seek unity as the ultimate thing. We need to say, it is more important to care for my fellow brother and sister in Christ than it is for me to be right, than it is for me to get my way. And as I told you earlier, There's no way that we could possibly hope to practice such things in such a broken state, with our hearts in such a broken state, with the world in such a broken state. What should we do? We're called to look to Jesus, not only as our Savior and example, but as our greatest love and our motivator. In Philippians 2, verses 1 through 9, it says this, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And how can you do this? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is Jesus has made it possible for you to have the mind that I've just talked about and that I'm about to continue to talk about. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. What he's saying is sacrifice our own desires for the sake of others, because that is precisely what Jesus has done for us. We sacrifice and serve others who have different opinions than us because that is exactly what Jesus has done for us because we don't think about it. But before you knew Jesus, how concerned were you with unity of the church? How concerned were you 
with God and his love for you, with the commands that he's given us in scripture, we were not concerned at all with these things. And what did Jesus do? He stepped down from fellowship with the Father, from perfect unity with God and the Holy Spirit, and lived a perfect life that we couldn't live while we didn't know him and didn't care about him and walked as enemies of God. And he was wounded by us, pierced for our transgressions, and loved us unconditionally. While we didn't care to look at him, while we never cared to know him or talk to him, he did these things and he loved us unconditionally with great compassion. And he did it to serve us while we did not have the same opinion of him that we do now. Well, we did not have the same opinion that of the Father that He did, of the Holy Spirit that He did. Well, we did not desire the things that He desires. He did this for us. So how can we love and serve others? Because we have been loved and served by God. He is the perfect example of what it means to love others despite our differences, despite what we think despite how we disagree over many, many different things, because we do, even if we don't want to talk about it, we do. He's the perfect example. So taking this knowledge, allowing this to motivate us day in and day out, that Jesus was the perfect one who did this perfectly for us and for others. And verse 15, verses 1 through 3, now says this, We who are strong, the mature believers, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What's he saying? He could have stopped it. He could have already said, that's challenging enough in chapter 14 to love these people like that, to tell us not to destroy the works of God and the unity of the kingdom with our own preferences. And now he's saying, we have an obligation, we have a requirement, we are commanded to bear with the failings of the weak, to make sure that we do not cause them to stumble, to help them as they stumble, which means that we sacrifice our own rights and our own preferences and our own desires not to please ourselves, but to please our neighbor for his good, to build him up. And why do we do this? The same reason we just talked about, because Jesus did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. That's the disapproval, the disappointment that was because of us. The disapproval and the disappointment that we were to God how we deserve to be separated from him. Jesus said, I took that for you. I took that for you and I helped you in your weakness and in your pain and in your suffering. I died so that you wouldn't have to feel that reproach, so that you wouldn't have to know what it's like to feel that. And that's how he ends it. So I want to end it today. It's the last thing that I want to talk about. is that Scripture is so clear, even though it's not clear about exactly what you should do in this situation, right? Who you should vote for, which policy. It's so clear what we're called to do as believers who've been called to be united. Called to love people who have different convictions than we do. We live in a culture that entices us to speak our thoughts from behind a screen instead of listening well and speaking in love to others. God is saying, no, that's not what we're called to do. So what do we need to do as we leave here today? Remember what Jesus has done for you, first and foremost. And now pursue relationships with other Christians who have different views than us. Pursue relationships with other Christians who have different views than you do. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, There is someone in your life who has a different view than you do, who knows Christ. And if there's not, 
then we have a problem because we need to expand our social circle. Because God has not called us all to look exactly the same as far as our opinions and preferences. He's called us all to holiness. He's called us all to look like Christ. But that doesn't mean that you'll make the same decisions. So pursue relationships with other Christians who have different views than you. Because Bible-believing Christians have different opinions on policies and on which politicians to vote for. And that's okay. Because while the world is trying to turn us against one another, we know that those things are not ultimate. Those things are not eternal. And that we ultimately serve the greatest leader and the greatest king who is coming back and who will unite us all together in perfect harmony and perfect unity and perfect peace with a perfect joy that will never end. And that's who we serve more than anyone. David Platt is just a great guy, in my opinion. And in the same span of 24 hours, this must have been a couple years ago, President Trump came, showed up to their church and he prayed for them and was labeled as this right-wing conservative. And then he wrote a letter that night, stayed up all night writing a letter. And by Monday morning, in the span of 24 hours, had been labeled a right-wing extreme conservative and a left-wing extreme liberal. And the purpose of him, of me telling you that, is that it's not that you are called to have these, well, to not have these political opinions, because that's, that's fine. What you are called to do is reflect Jesus in all that you do and think and say, and that means being united. And Platt, in doing what he did, was never trying to be political, but was labeled both because he was following Jesus, because he did not care about the policies, but cared about what was right, what was most glorifying to God. And that's what we should ultimately be the most concerned with, because politics will pit us up against one another, and they will cause us to isolate one another and to retreat to different social circles. But Jesus has called us to be united and to point one another to Jesus to build one another up, to challenge one another to grow. So refuse to quarrel over opinions and instead choose to build one another up with the truths of Jesus and to be united, serving one another, pointing one another to Christ constantly. Let's pray.